my name is Hannah. I'll be reading from 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided my, for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesus called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has chosen not these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'm not just going to bring this over just a bit because they can see online then. Ugh, there you go. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Glenn, and I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Willow Park Church. Welcome if you are watching online. We have a lot of people online, and uh, thank you for your encouraging emails and messages. Uh, we're grateful that you are joining us, and uh, yeah, it's really, really exciting that we have this technology, and so I'm excited this morning because we're sharing a new message series. Before we get into that, though, uh, there are times when you tell a story or an illustration as a pastor that it comes back and haunts you. Um, that's my experience this week. Uh, when, I had, uh, when, I, when I mentioned jigsaws last week, um, thank you for all of you who sent me messages, and uh, much appreciate. Even this morning, I got given uh, by Aislin and uh, Josh a 1,500-piece uh, puzzle. Uh, in Britain, they're just called jigsaws. Here, they're called puzzles. Uh, I, I, so uh, somebody told me that as well. They sent me an email. So thank you for correcting me on that piece of theology. Uh, my favorite, though, this week, actually, uh, David and Anne McLean uh, bought me this. For my, uh, for my birthday last week, thanks for those of you who didn't remember, <clears throat> um, this is a thousand piece uh, uh, Star Wars j jigsaw 
those of you who are beady-eyed or follow me on Instagram, and if you don't, you can. On Instagram, it's just at Glenn Madden on Instagram. You'll see, you can zoom in, and you'll see that the, the numbers of, of dark pieces in this puzzle, so much so, my wife, Sarah, she, um, I said, Sarah, will you help me? And she went, yeah, sure. Then she looked at the front of the box and went, no, you're on your own. Thanks, Sarah. 30 years marriage almost. Uh, just look, look at, that's them all turned the right way. So I'm going to be, I'm challenge accepted. I'm going to do this puzzle, jigsaw puzzle, and, and then we'll, we'll look at Aislinn and Josh's. So uh, that's 1,500 pieces, which is just mad. I'm hoping that someone just give me one of those toddler ones that are like 20 pieces with chewable bits that you can take in the bath. Those are kind of my level. Um, but I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to crack on and have a good go at that. So, so good. Thank you. It's been fun. And, uh, and, and Jenny said on, uh, she said, well, you, you better watch out that somebody's not going to steal a piece, because that was my story, for those of you who didn't hear anything uh, last week. Um, and I was like, there are so many people who could be out for revenge. I'd be amazed if somebody doesn't just go, I'm just going to take all these pieces. He'll never know. And we'll, we'll see. I want to start this, uh, this morning's message by, um, I've got the David slide. Are we back on here, guys? There we go. Okay. So the David series, let me just go back to the original David slide. We're starting this series over the next six weeks, uh, maybe a little longer. It depends on, uh, on how we go. Um, but this series, I want to start off by just making a preface, first of all. And the preface is this, and this is so, so important. I could speak a long time about this. It's more of a lecture rather than a sermon preached, but it's very important. I want you to put on the correct set of lenses when you look at this story of David. Indeed, I would actually say this is the lens, the spectacles, the glasses that you need to read the whole Bible through. We get caught in our Western mindset, in our culture, that whatever book we read somehow has to terminate on us. That what can I learn from this book? How can this book give me guidance? How can it help me improve my life? And we approach the Bible, if we're not careful, only as a self-help book that was written thousands of years ago. And I would say, in some agreement, there are many, many things that you can align your life with and go, this is how we should live. But I want to say this, and, and I really hope you remember this. If you've got your journal, write it down. Take a photo of it. Put it on your wall. Put it inside your Bible, wherever it is. This, uh, this statement is 100% true. The Bible is about Jesus before it's about us. The Bible is about Jesus before it's about us. It is so, so important that when we read the Old Testament, we're looking at it through the lens of what is this telling me about Jesus? What is this telling me about the gospel? Jesus, after he rose from the dead in Luke chapter 24, there's this story where he was walking along the road of Emmaus with two people. If you read Luke chapter 24, we're not going to go there today, you will see that they knew their Bibles really well. They were actually able to quote the Bible to Jesus, and yet they didn't know it at all. Because Jesus said this, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in, to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You will see countless times in the, in the Bible where it refers to the Bible itself, the scriptures, being about Jesus. That they knew about the Bible but completely missed it. Because it's all about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus before it's about us. 
just by a quick flyby, even if you look at something like the law in, in, in Leviticus and the, and the codes that we're told, the, uh, the, the different types of law, the dietary law, um, all these laws, you can go, okay, how is this telling me about Jesus? What it is is this. It's saying this. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the way of God to God. Jesus' sacrifice opens the way to God. Jesus Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The ceremony is all about Jesus, and the law, therefore, is all about Jesus. That's just one section of the Bible. And the reason I'm starting at this point is I don't want us to approach the story of David in our Sunday school flannel graph kind of way. How many of you remember them? Remember the flannel graphs? How many of you got no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, all the uh, millennials and the Gen Zs, likely. Uh, you, you Google flannel graph, not right now, please. Uh, if you put David flannel graph, what you're likely to see is pictures of Goliath and David stuck on a felt board, and some of them start wilting and peeling off, like, oh, there's Moses, he's had enough, he's kind of peeling off the fire. We've got this image of David and Goliath and these amazing stories. And friends, trust me, you will find life help in these stories. But this story is primarily teaching us about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done, who he is today, what it's got to do with us in Kelowna in 2022. It's all about Jesus. It will reveal the deepest, darkest parts of our lives to ourselves as well. You will find there's elements of David's life that really do belong in an adult comic book. He was the warrior king. He was hated, he was a manipulator, he was angry, he was lustful, he was an adulterer, he was all these things. And yet at the same time, he was also a worshiper. He is nigh on genius because you can actually see that David at the same time as waging war against nations is able to write some of the most beautiful and often quoted poetry to this day. David is an enigma. He's a conflicted leader. And what you're going to find is there's elements of David's life that we align ourselves with and resonate with in this day. So yes, the deepest part of ourselves we can find in the story of David, but more so it is shouting out that there's a shadow of Jesus. The story creates the shadow, and the shadow you can see the life and the love of Jesus. So where do we start? Well, we're talking about a nation that was under great tension at the time. The high priest, Eli, had died. Samuel had taken over. Samuel was the last judge of Israel at that time, and he was very, very old. And so the people were looking at other nations, and they were going, hey, they've got kings. We want a king. They were literally as shallow as that. They were concerned about what other nations might think of them. And they said, hey, other nations got kings. We want a king. Give us a king. And so God said, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king, but Samuel warned them. Let them know what it is that they're asking for, and let them know this is going to end badly. I'm going to give them exactly what they want. And God did exactly that. So what did they choose in classic Kelowna, Western culture way? They chose the tallest, most handsome person they could find called Saul. That's our guy. Why? Because he's tall. Great. What a great basis on which to choose someone. Saul was the first Instagram influencer. This guy strutted himself around so well, and he had a good heart at the start. He was a good-looking fella, as we'd say in Britain. 
He'd turn heads. He was tall. And at that time, and any of you know any history, when you look back, certainly in ancient Israel history, all the way through to medieval times, William Wallace is a great example of this, the Braveheart character that uh, I still love and still trying to convince my son to watch it with me. But he says, it's three hours long, Dad. Yes, and it's awesome. Braveheart, William Wallace, you actually look back at the history of William Wallace, the writers of the day, the abbots who were often the historical writers of the day, said that he stood head and shoulders above the rest, that he had, as one writer actually said he was over seven foot tall. I think that all the Celts were so small at that time, they were looking up that anything, whoa, he must be seven foot. There is evidence to show that he was really tall by his broadsword, which they have found that a man of at least six foot six would have needed to have been able to wield this and hack his way through the English. Hey, it's awesome. So history says that the people were chosen on the basis of their height. What do we do? We choose people on the basis of their success, their popularity, the people that they know, the position that they have, the money, that wow, look at how incredible they are. I choose them. And so what happened is Saul spiraled out of control, just like God said. He became fickle, he became shallow, he became angry, he became demonic. Now the people had two problems. They were a nation under control, and they were being invaded. There was massive tension within politically in all sorts of different ways, but also the military, the armies that were coming at them. And now they had a crazy king. God said exactly that would happen. But he hasn't finished yet. God hasn't finished yet. God did not abandon his people. He had a plan. And the beautiful thing is, his plan stank of sheep. An 11-year-old kid on the side of a mountain, forgotten, stinking of sheep. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul. You see, Samuel had an inkling of the type of king that Israel needed and knew that that was not the king that they had. How long will you grieve over Saul? This is God snapping Samuel out of it. Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. The second that God said that to Samuel, Samuel would have thought one thing, treason. Except he would have thought it in ancient Hebrew. Treason. Because if Saul heard what it is that Samuel was about to do, then he would quite rightly have cut Samuel's head off lightly and cut the plan. So God said, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his souls. Really interesting. I have provided for myself. Not Israel. For myself, a king. I have provided myself a king. And who is it that God is referring to? I'm not going to ask you by raising of hands, but I just want to prove a point that the Bible is all about Jesus. I have provided myself a king. King Jesus or King David? Yes, to both. Because King Jesus came from the line of King David. So God is already prophetically pointing forward to Samuel saying, I provided for myself a king. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him trembling. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation that when you go into the room, everybody trembles because you're there. That's not great. That's not, you know, that's not a nice feeling, but that's the power that Samuel had because the people knew that when Samuel spoke, 
This was God speaking. And Samuel, the prophet, really only came to town. Prophets of the Old Testament came to town for basically three reasons. That's why they said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. And everybody went, thank goodness for that. Because prophets came either to warn the people of impending doom, code for buckle up, God's going to get you. Or they came to in judgment that it was too late. Or they came to offer a sacrifice. They're throwing a worship service. Awesome. Samuel's packing his guitar. Let's go. Do you come peaceably? I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. It's the exact same theme that we have just done in communion. Examine yourselves. Get ready. Start praying. Confess your sins. We are going to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And there begins this incredible passage. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Exactly what all the Israelites had thought when they saw Saul. Is that not right? Surely the Lord is anointed before him. Look at him. Because we know that, but we know he's tall. Because the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. Ouch. It's got nothing to do with what he looks like, Samuel. When are you going to learn? When are you going to learn that the outward appearance that your culture is projecting out is not what I regard? For the Lord looks, sorry, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Can we just be really honest with ourselves just for a second? Let's consecrate ourselves. Let's examine ourselves. Is this not what we tell our children and in our culture all the time? Hey, you know what? The outward appearance, it's not that important. It's all about who you are. Right? We say that all the time. It's like going into a McDonald's, gorging yourself with a Big Mac, and while you've got the food in your mouth saying, I can't understand why people eat this, it's terrible, and being judgmental about people who eat Big Macs while stuffing your face with one. The best illustration I could come up with. The hypocrisy is huge in our culture. We say, oh, it's all about what's in the inside while disregarding what's on the inside and looking at what's on the outside only. If Samuel the prophet is guilty of this, in that time, having experienced the horror of where that gets you, how much more in our culture do we find ourselves looking at the visual and making judgments by what they drive, by the house that they have, the, the looks that they have, the abs that they might have, the lifestyle they might have, what the experiences they might have, whatever it is, and go, I want to be like them. I will follow wherever your voice takes me. And then we orient our life behind that, making that our goal. And God says right at the beginning, I don't look as man sees. Man, this is mankind, this is man and woman. Man looks on the outward appearance, but I, the Lord, look on the heart. He'd already prepared himself a young heart that was after his own. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Nope. Next. Then Jesse made Shema. I kind of feel sorry for these two guys because you've got seven brothers all lined up, all waiting for Samuel. And he starts with the tallest and the best looking. They're going, oh, it's going to be him. Nope. And they go to the next and they're like, yes, it's got to be me. Nope. Nope. 
all the way down the line. This is brutal. This is like American Idol on speed. This is terrible. The feelings of rejection that, you know, I could preach along that, that, that God has got this bigger plan in mind right now, and he's going along the line. Verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, this is perhaps one of the most tragic verses you will find in the whole of the Old Testament. Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, code four, really? He's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. I like that. Hey, don't you be sitting down. You didn't bring all your kids down. You're going to stand and wait. Can you imagine them? Like, oh. You think we, we stand a lot in church? Trust me, because we don't know where David was. He could have been like miles away. And they're all just standing, waiting. This is a tragic verse because what it communicates something that is so painful. It's so painful to think about this because it's the experience of so many. It's heartbreaking. Jesse, the dad, doesn't even remember David. Or worse, remembers David and rejects him. It's not him. No chance. It can't be. See, traditionally, a shepherd at that time could be one of two things. It could be that Jesse, uh, sorry, David was being used by his dad because Jesse had incurred a lot of debt. And the way that this debt was paid off in ancient Israel's time is they would literally hand their youngest over as a slave, and then the lowest of the low of the low job you could do at that time was be a shepherd. Shepherds weren't regarded at all. If they spoke, it was immediately considered to be a lie. Their word was not used in court. It was the lowest job that you could find. So either Jesse was paying off a debt by enslaving his son, or he just had sheep himself. He couldn't find anyone else to do it. David, you go do it. And on top of that, being the youngest at potentially 11 or 12 years old meant that you were the least valuable. Sorry, Jack. You meant you were the least valuable. You were the most dispensable. Especially, and this is heartbreaking, if you had lots of kids at that time, all the way through to the actually quite near history, even the last 50, year, 50 to 75 years, you had more kids because you didn't expect the kids to survive. So think of the mentality. Well, I've got seven boys. I'm doing all right. Don't care if he dies. Because he was just kind of my backup anyway. And these ones seem to be doing well. Look at how tall and handsome they are. This is heartbreaking. Imagine the moment when the messenger that was sent came over the crest of the hill and David is sat there and he's slinging shots. He's killing lions and bears, which is phenomenal. He's learning to play music. He's writing poetry, potentially. He's got all this beauty and skill and calling. And he's good looking. Sarah always giggles about that verse. She's like, I can't wait to see what David looked like. He was ruddy. <laughs> he was ruddy and good looking. He sat on the side of the mountain. The messenger comes over the brow of the hill. He sees the messenger running towards him because Samuel's waiting. And all his family, all the people who employ him are all stood waiting like this by this time. What's happened? What's going on? What's wrong? David is curious. The messenger relays the events. 
See, we read verses like this and we skip past them because imagine what went through David's mind when he heard the events. It's like a hammer blow to the heart. It's a reminder of his worth, a reminder of his value, a reminder of his dad forgetting him, a reminder that his family forgot about him, rejected, disregarded, left behind. All of that comes imploding into David's mind. It has to. That's not reading anything into the Bible. That's just called human. Painful to think about because that is the experience of many. You feel like life or family or circumstances has given you a hammer blow to the heart. That you're reminded of your worth and your value. Not because you are comparing yourself to things that are appropriate, but because you're comparing to that which the culture offers and says, look at this and look at you. Looking after stinking sheep on a forgotten valley. Can I tell you, this whole story of David is rooted in this truth, that God has a plan. I was so excited. I didn't actually know Zoe and Erica that we were going to sing Reckless Love. That whole song is the story of David. That David was pursued by God. That God has a plan. And he pursues the one that our culture forgets. Friends, please, please, please do not fall into the trap that even Samuel fell into and regard what people look like or what people are doing and make judgment based on that. Don't just say it, live it. Let's be that kind of church where we reflect the pursuit of God because we're pursuing the ones that are unlovable, that we make it our uh, priority to love the unlovable, not just in this city or in this province, but in the world, so that when you are giving money, it's not like this begrudging amount of money handing over to the church, but you're actually doing this because you recognize this money is furthering the gospel towards the unlovable in this city. See, humanly speaking, we look at the love of God and we look at it in, in wrong terms. And this is very, very important. Now we're starting to edge into what do we see in Jesus in this story. Because humanly speaking, when you fall in love with somebody, you, you know, let's be honest again, the, the first thing you think is, wow, they're really good looking. Then you might think, I'm a full, I fell in love with this one because, uh, with this person because there's that chemistry, there's that personality. Maybe you fall in love with their character. Maybe you fall in love with their traits, what they love to do. All these things start aligning, and that's great. That's how we've been wired. That's a reflection of God, absolutely. I love what Joel Federson says when he talks about his wife, Melissa. This was our old youth pastor, and he said, I fell in love uh, I, uh, with Melissa because she was cute and smelled like fruit. I like that. <laughs> Hashtag that. And that's all right. But can I tell you, God doesn't love you because you're cute and smell like fruit. God doesn't love you based on your personality, your character. God does not love you on the things that you have done. He doesn't love you on whether or not you smell like sheep. He doesn't love you if you're tall, short, fat, thin. He formed you in your mother's womb. Your personality was formed by him. Your looks were formed by him. You are not an accident. The greatest lie, the evolution, that kind of origin of life evolution that's brought to this world is the idea that you somehow are, a, are an accident that has been formed out of some fluid. You are not an accident. But can I tell you, God doesn't love you because of that. And what we do is we apply those metrics on God. We look at the way we fall in love and the contingencies we have on love, and we assume that God loves us on the same basis. Can I tell you, that is not divine love. 
God doesn't love you based on your looks and chemistry and personality and the things you've done and that you smell good. And while we project ourselves onto God in that way, what we do is we turn God's thoughts around wrong and assume he doesn't love you. Because why would he? Why would he? There's nothing to love there. Because let's be honest, when it all goes quiet and it's just you and the thunder of your soul... You know who you are, and I know who I am. I know the wrestles. I know the difficulties. I know the sin. Why would God love me? Because I barely love me. In fact, there's days I don't love me. Sometimes I don't like me. The Puritans asked this question, why does God love? You know the answer that they gave, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially this is, he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Thanks, Puritans. It's really helpful. In other words, he just does. The closest we get is if you've got a little one in your life, a child in your life, that the second that you hold that child, you fall instantly, deeply, head over heels in love. In a way that you cannot describe until you experience it. And it might have happened with a little brother or a little sister or someone in your family. But then you look at what that baby actually contributes. Nothing. Right? They poop, they sleep, they feed, repeat. Oh, they cry. And then they get older into toddlers, then it just gets more experimental. How can I poop in more kind of creative ways? How can I, and and it just gets, and then you get into teenage and young adults, and that's where I'm going to stop because all my children are young adults. But there are times when you go, I just love you so much. And I don't know why. You know, I don't know why. And that's the closest we get. And if God, if we are able to love in that kind of uncontingent way, how much more does God love you? And as our soul thunders inside and we're reminded of who we're at, it plays out exactly what it says in Romans, and I can't take you there today because we haven't got time, is that there is nothing in you worthy of that love. There's nothing. In fact, the opposite is true, that most of our lives before we come to know Jesus are actually, the Bible said, set against God, enemies of God. We have no regard for God. So God not only loves people who love him, he loves those people who hate him. Our hearts are set against him, and there's nothing in us that chooses him. And yet, when you think about it, when was it that God chose God? Uh, Sorry, God chose David. That's why I love these Bible passages because there's so much in it. I could easily go down the route of predestination. I had it all in my notes. I've spoken about it often, and I love speaking about election and predestination. It is just so chewy. It's great, but not for this morning. Why, when did God choose David? When Samuel anointed him? When the Spirit of God rushed upon him? Out on a field by himself, 11 years old, stinking a sheep. God had no reason to choose David, but he loved him, that he loved him, that he loved him. When did God choose David? When he was in the desert, when he'd done nothing, when he was forgotten, when he was disregarded, when he was completely rejected, when he was forgotten by his dad and his family, that's when God chose 
David. When he had done nothing, had nothing, was nothing, other than he had the love and the eye of God on him. Because I have purposed, God said. I have chosen myself a king. Can I encourage you that you are not forgotten? You are not regarded, disregarded. You are not rejected. You might stink. People might, not literally, spiritually. Maybe literally. But this is God's MO. This is God's modus operandi. This is how God works. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You will never clean yourself up good enough to be accepted uh, by God. You see, this acceptance that comes through Jesus comes through Jesus, not your works, not the good things that you do, not the way you look, not whether your head and shoulders above everybody else. None of that is counted by God. It's the heart that God looks like. And surprise, God is the one who changes your heart towards him. That's amazing. So you don't even have to kind of like, okay, I've got to really try and love God. There just comes a day, and every one of you who calls Jesus your Lord and you're a Christian can probably remember the day where there was one day you didn't think about God, and the next day you did. Why? Because you were sat on the valley just like David, and God went, now, I choose him. I choose her. And you might not have even gone, what is, what's going on? I've never thought this way before. And you might be years away from it actually coming to the point where you recognize Jesus as your Lord and you become into that relationship and you have that conversion. But for those years, you think something that you didn't think before. Where does that come from? Now, whether you're Calvinist or Armenian, and I'm, I, oh boy, there's a lot to unpack there, but two very opposing theologies, both will say this. It is God that initiates faith in you. Calvinists believe you can't resist it. Armenians believe you can resist it. More kind of, uh, if you want to put it in denominational terms, that would be a very Pentecostal type of viewpoint, not just Pentecostal. Going back to Wesleyan and this viewpoint is more reformed, going back to Martin Luther. But both agree on this. It is God that initiates faith within you. So one day you didn't believe, the next day suddenly there's this spirit of God that tugs at your heart. Because it says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not your power, not your decision, not your will. You didn't suddenly go, tomorrow I'm going to start thinking about God. But something happens. Now whether you are in this camp, non-resistance, you cannot, there's nothing you can do about it, just hold on baby because it's going to happen. Or this camp that you can walk away, doesn't matter. Be encouraged. It does matter. That's another conversation. But be encouraged by this. That God seeks you out. And you might have a loved one in your life that you just think isn't just on the side of a mountain somewhere. You feel like they're in Antarctica buried under ice when it comes to their heart. You just don't know what God is doing in that person's heart. Don't look at the outward. Trust in the inward. See, God had already visited the family of Jesse when David had done nothing. And he sent and brought him in. And so it begins. I love this. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and left and everyone sat down. (sighs) Looking at David. The Spirit of God rushed upon David. This 11, 12-year-old kid. The Spirit of God was upon him. Then what? What happens next? Somebody can shout it out in good old Pentecostal. Anyone? What happens with David next? Back to the sheep. Yeah, but wait. wait, wait. I'm king. Where's the chauffeur-driven limo? Today is the queen's 70th jubilee. I don't know. What is that? Is that platinum now? Are we up to platinum? Like... <laughs> Okay, Queen Elizabeth, 70 years ago, you were anointed, because they do anoint the crown. You are now queen. There's a bunch of sheep over there you probably want to sort out, because you left them by yourselves. David goes back to the sheep. I really prayed about this next section. I'm sorry if I'm going to go along today, but this is just too good. And this is a word of the Lord for some of you, if not most of you in this room. Can I tell you this? That you may have received a profound promise in your life at some point, You may have received an anointing. You became so aware of God rushing upon you. Maybe it wasn't dramatic. Maybe you just got this sense of what you're doing now is not not what you have been called to do in the future. And we need to celebrate that. But can I tell you, often the vision has to die before it lives. Often you go back to the sheep for years before you actually are brought to that place where God fulfills that kingdom or queendom, into your life. And the danger is, especially in our culture, this is why this is so important, our culture, we are encouraged to push doors, make it happen, go for it. It's all about you. You want to do it, you go for it. Go for it, go for it. It's all about you. All the time placing huge shame and condemnation when you don't, or if you try and you fail, but that's again another message. But you go for it. And so as Christians, can I encourage you, there is a time to push the door and there's a time when you go back to the sheep. In Acts 17, there's this beautiful verse and it's worth remembering and learning. He, God, this is Paul talking, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That means God has determined that you are here at the south today listening to this British guy preach. I actually believe in the plan and sovereignty of God to that detail. I'm okay with that. God also has determined that the job, the position, the class that you are in, the age that you're at, the people that are around you, you have been placed there for an allotted period. He knows what he is doing. That not only that, the period of time, how long, what you're going to do there, that God wants to use you right now, here. And one of the most discontent places, especially if you're a young adult, millennial, but it doesn't just stop after 40, is this feeling that what you're doing is not what you should be doing, and you're striving for more all the time. That's great in the eyes of the culture, but what it actually is creating is this discontent, dissatisfaction, at best, bitterness at worst towards the God's, uh, what God has for you in life. Because God, you said this. And what David did 
we can all learn from because he went back to the sheep and he looked after the sheep well. He was gifted in music and he played well. He was given the opportunity to wait and he waited well. He was given the opportunity to hunt and hone his skills and he did it well. And when he had the opportunity to serve the king in the next section, he did it well. He ended up in the palace. He could have gone, this is it. I'm here. Saul wants me to play music for him. You can read it in the next section. Spoiler alert. Read it. Saul says, you know what? I I need to be calmed. They say, well, I hear that David on the side of the mountain, he's a bit stinky, but he's really good at music. Bring him in. He plays. David must have gone, oh, I'm here. This is what Samuel said. Saul's going to drop dead. Everyone's going to turn to me and go, you, my friend, because your guitar playing should be king. He finishes playing. Where does he go? Back to the sheep. You can go into the David and Goliath story. You can see he's looking after the sheep when his dad says, I need you to take these cheese sandwiches to your brother. He looks after the sheep. That was his calling. Maybe this is a word for you. Stop looking to what's next and look to what's now. And ask yourself, what is it that God is calling me to do now and how can I do it well? How can I do it well? What has God given you? Friends, we're stepping into a period of time as a church that I am so excited about. Because I don't actually know. But what is God asking you to do now and what can you do to do it well? We're going to ask you to step up and help physically, financially, spiritually, lead well, influence, champion, organize, do it well. That's what God has called us to be. When I was 19, I made a terrible mistake, one of many. I, uh, I went to um, my university. I'd been accepted onto a course. Uh, my mom is sat right there. She might not even know this. There's been many times, mom, that this has happened to you. I'm sorry. The revelations that happen here. That uh, she just goes, really? I never knew that. She's so gracious. And uh, first day of university, I arrived, and I have, I've told this story before. Um, for, for some of you have not heard it, so. I arrived at my university, and I had applied to become a teacher because my pastor had said no to me becoming a pastor, um, which I was a little bitter about, um, but he was right. And I, uh, I arrived at university, and we entered this massive gymnasium, like just huge university-sized gymnasium. And all the way along the walls were pieces of paper with different subjects written on, because I was now going to be a student teacher, a four-year B.Ed. program, and I'd applied to, for environmental studies because I like geography and history and humanities and all that kind of stuff. And so I sat there, kind of a very quick story. I sat there, and, and it was maybe about this many chairs, and, uh, and there was just a section of chairs there, a section of chairs there, all in front of environmental studies. There was the mathematics students. They all kind of, um, kind of shuffled in, uh, a bit nerdy. And um, sorry, Mike, you might not be in the room. Uh, PE students that just kind of all looked drunk, to be honest. Um, there was, uh, it's true, <laughs> they partied hard, that group. I don't know what it is with PE and T, anyway. Uh, and so I sat there and I listened to the lecturer who was in charge of my environmental studies, and within seconds I'm like, I can't do this. I will just be so bored. And so I sat on the back row, because that's where you sit, and I looked around the, the gym, all these different subjects. Now I need to tell you, at 18, I felt such a strong call of God on my life. The Spirit of God rushed upon me. 
I knew that I knew that I knew that God had called me to be a pastor at 18. I knew that he'd been called me to preach. I couldn't preach, but I knew he'd called me to preach. So I had this in my mind, and I'm looking around, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because I'm going to be a pastor. So I'm just going to choose one. And I'm going to see if I can get on that course instead. So I chose design technology, which is basically like a shop teacher, woodwork, metalwork, graphic design, all that stuff. And I literally remember thinking, oh, that's cool. I like drawing stuff. So I left my seat and I went back. Now, please bear in mind, I'd applied for this university course and been accepted because my A-levels. You don't just get to change your course. But I thought I'd give it a go because what have I got to lose? I'm going to be a pastor anyway. I don't care. Sat at the back, design technology. Long story short, uh, we stood up I, and, and we were lining up and, and he was checking names off lists. I knew my name wasn't on the list and I'm kind of going full on Kenneth Colton, prosperity gospel. God, in the name of Jesus, just make my name appear. I don't believe in that, but in that moment, I'm like, I'll try anything. I want to get on this design technology course. And I got to the front and Dr. Gwyn Pritchard didn't even look up. He went, name, I went mad and he looked down the list and he went, your name's not on the list. I'm like, Oh, God. I went, yeah, I know. We had a conversation. He asked me about my art experience. I said, well, I'd done a lot of graffitiing. True story. I did youth clubs and stuff. I love graffiti art and design. Mum remembers me drawing all that stuff. And I went, I have not done A-levels. I've not done O-levels. I just like art. And he looked at me for the longest time. He went, yeah, okay. And got me on the course. I had the best four years. Love it. I loved it. At 19, the same age, I became an associate along with Sarah at a church plant that my pastor from the main church had planted there, and we started there. At 25, we started pastoring. This is after I qualified to be a teacher, pastoring a depleted church, replanted it. At 30, we moved to Canada and started working at Pacific Academy and pastoring a young adult group. Can I tell you, every step of the way, I was like, God, when am I going to start pastoring? And all the time, God was like, you are pastoring. Because at 19, I was traveling around Eastern Europe preaching. That's where God maybe was honing some of what you're experiencing today. I don't know. Maybe that's God's plan. The reason I'm saying that is that you look at stages of your life and you just hold on until that stage appears. You are missing out on the calling of God. Be a pastor now. Preach the gospel now. I don't care if you're 11 or 12. Do it. Seek it out. Where are the pioneers? Where are the people who are going, I'm going to seek out Glenn, I'm going to seek out Pastor Phil, I'm going to ask some advice because I feel the call of God on my life. Wait well. So let me summarize. David was a servant who became a king. Jesus was a king that became a servant. Jesus was born in humility, in humble beginnings to a teenage mum in a nothing town called Bethlehem where David was from. Like David, Jesus was rejected. But then Jesus, like God in David's story, recruited the meek, the poor, the persecuted, the unlovable. He called the not good enough, the people who were the lost causes, the tragic, the the people who who smelt a bit, the despicable, the beaten down, the broken sinner, and he chose me. He picked the fringe. He picked the outer circle. He picked the pimps, the politicians, the upper class. Can I tell you that you look at the upper class in our culture and you think they have everything? Actually, they have nothing in the eyes of God. If you're only judging by what they have. But God, Jesus actually went up after the aristocrats, the lepers, the blind, the outcasts, the worthless. 
He went after the Davids. He went after those and reminded them, actually, you don't have to fight towards the throne. You don't have to fight towards something in life. Let me tell you, the throne came to us. He chose the strange, the broken, the hurt to represent his kingdom. And he chose many of you. Jesus gave himself. He took our place. He paid the price that I needed to pay, that you need to pay for the sins that we willingly commit. He was rejected for the rejected. He was beaten, naked, shame-filled, placed on the cross, and died the most horrendous death. And he took that cosmic shame. Just think about this. How much shame you might feel over some of the things that you have done or experienced in your life. And the weight that that feels placed upon Jesus, multiplied by all those who make a decision to follow him. In that moment, that is what he felt on that cross. He died an ugly and horrific death because our sin and our shame is ugly and horrific. But he'd not finished. He slammed death in the face and he rose again three days later, thereby giving us this freedom that he found from death. He then placed in us. And then the Spirit of God rushed upon David in the same way that when you come to that place, when you recognize this love has pierced you, when you are humbled, when you recognize you can't fix yourself, that you realize that the Spirit of God rushes upon you, which is what Jesus did on the cross for each one of us, that he died and that our sin and shame were imputed, placed upon him. And then when he rose again, his righteousness, his life, his spirit is imputed upon and in and around us. That when that happens to you, you're no longer tethered in the way that the culture would seek to tie you down by your results, by your looks, by your popularity, by the people you know, by the products that you push, that no longer needing to self-validate or prove yourself, that your good results are a bonus in life, not an indicator of how successful you are in life. Your success is not a determining factor anymore because you are loved, you are pursued, you are cared for by Jesus. You become fearless and unstoppable in a way because what can you do to somebody who's old has died and new has come and you are loved by the divine? What do you do to that person because they've got nothing to lose? Because Paul said, you can take my life away and I will, uh, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do to someone like that? See, now your effort is not to gain ground, but it's become more like him and to know him more deeply so that you can go into this world and show the world the same love that you experienced. That you can be satisfied and content with where you are and you can wait well and do well. You can raise your kids well. You can greet on a Sunday well. You can make coffee on a Sunday well. You can listen to your friend or neighbor well. You can meet in a gym well. You can set up a gym well. Just as you would in a 2,000-strong auditorium, God can move through us. And that's why the story of David screams and shouts, Jesus, because it's our story. And so I'm going to come to an end and I'm going to pray for you. We're not going to finish with a song. Is that okay, guys? This isn't a point of, oh, this is a point of, I cannot believe that he saw me on the side of a mountain and loves me. And so I'm going to pray for you. And I want to ask the Lord would speak to you, encourage you, and, and in a way that I've not been able to over the last little while. 
But I'm praying that the last, I don't know how long I've preached for, I'm sure it's long. Long. But maybe this will be a turning point for you. That as a church would actually start seeing the Spirit of God rushing upon His people in a way that we only read about. Let's pray together. Oh God, what a story. What a story. That Lord, I'm so grateful that we can look at the story of David and we can see the story of ourselves, but we can see the story of you, Jesus. And God, I just want to echo that song we sang. Your incredible love for us, pursuing us, coming after the 99, that no lie, no wall, no event can stop you. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would break through and Lord, that you would speak. Lord, I pray that for some in this room, this will be the start of a tumultuous time of thinking through where they are in relation to you. Lord, I pray that people will be kept awake at night thinking praying, pursuing you. Lord, I pray that your church at the south specifically, Lord, will be activated towards the mission you have called us to now, Lord. Lord, for those who are waiting, Lord, I pray, whatever it is they're waiting for, that they would hear encouragement from you to wait well. More than anything, Jesus, I pray that you would give us a fresh remembrance of your love for us, your pursuit of us your care and passion towards us. Thank you, Jesus, that the work that you have started in us, you have going to complete. Lord, for those who don't know you, God, I pray that even as I'm praying right now, that they would be giving their lives to you. Lord, they would be praying that prayer maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever. Jesus, forgive me that I might know you. And God, I pray that every one of us will be leaving this place encouraged, championed, emboldened for the calling that you have given us. Lord, let us have energy because, Lord, the Spirit of God has rushed upon us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, I got it off my...